chapter 1. We're going to start a new series today as we look at First and Second Peter. And, and I'm going to read the introduction to the, to the letter of First Peter. Um, and we're going to just kind of talk about it a little bit to kind of intro the whole series and so that we understand what the purpose is here and what Peter is after. So if you would turn First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And I just want you to see these two verses today and we'll talk about them for a few moments. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's Word for us today. This is God's Word that we might grow in Him and be His people, called by His name, and proclaim His greatness. The, the Bible is not written just as kind of a book for you to read to learn some cool stuff. It's meant to transform us. So my prayer for you today, my prayer for me today, is that we would be transformed by the Word of God. But I want to answer a couple of questions as we go into First and Second Peter, and we spend some time here. When we look at these letters, why in the world would we spend time in these letters? Why first and second Peter? And I want to just kind of make sure we understand this. If you were to look at first and second Peter, I would say first Peter especially is much like the the manual that's in the glove box of your car right now. Okay? If you need to know what's happening with your car, you might be able to start there. Okay? Like you can, if you know something serious is going on and you have no skills, whatever, with your car, you take it to a mechanic, right? Find Jonathan and you make sure it's taken care of, right? And he will zip tie it and you'll be good to go, okay? But the fact of the matter is there are lots of things that you are given as a tool to be able to help you and they're in that booklet, right? It's like an operation manual for the Christian life. First Peter is incredibly applicable to everything. So if you're sitting here and saying, how, I, how do I deal with a, a schoolmate who's difficult? How do I deal with my spouse? How do I deal with a boss? How do I deal? There are all kinds of things in here that you're going to find that will help you as you deal with it. But they're not just going to be the simple little answers. Okay? It's not going to be one of those things where you say, hey, how do I deal with my boss? There's a verse in here about how to deal with my boss. No, it's going to be these operating principles for the Christian life. So why first and second Peter? Because these letters were written in a time of hostility to the gospel. They were written in a time when God's people were the minority, not the majority. They were written in a culture that thumbed its nose at God and went their own way and thought they were wise. Sound familiar? And so these letters are going to tell us who we are in Christ, but also how to live as believers in this culture. It's a, it's a handbook to help us live in a culture that is hostile, not only towards us, but towards our Savior. And so if we're going to live faithfully, we're going to have to do more than just be soundbite people. Okay, here, Alistair Begg put it this way. This is the type, these are the types of Christians that are being produced right now, and I am fully committed to making sure this next generation of believers in our church, the people that we're discipling, the people that we want to grow as a church, 
don't turn out this way. But this is the reality of the culture we live in. Believers today don't want to read books. They want to read chapters. They don't want to read chapters. They want to read paragraphs. They don't want to read paragraphs. They want to read sentences. They don't want to read sentences. They want slogans. I would say tweets, right? They don't want slogans and tweets. They want words. Do you know how often it is that believers, members of our church, come to me, come to Pastor Roger, and you don't come saying, help me grow in my walk with Christ. I want to know Jesus more deeply. You go, how do I deal with this one specific issue? Could it be that maturity as a believer is not just being able to deal with specific issues in our lives, but actually diving deeply into who Jesus is. Could it be that we've bred an entire generation of believers who only ask pointed questions instead of looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith? First Peter's the cure for that. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. You know why? Because there's a bookshelf out here that has recommended books for you. Right? And I say, hey, you got an issue with this? Got a book for it. Got an issue with this? Got another book for it. Right? You come to me and I'm going to be, hey, read this book. I, I want to say it today in case I have not said it to you and I want to apologize. Everyone in here, you got a question about how to live as a believer in this world? I have a book for you. Have you read it? Don't, don't nod your head too quickly. Have you read it? Have you spent time in it? Have you sought the Lord in it? The last time you had a question about how, did you go to God first or to your friends and your pastor and your... Did you go, did you go to His revealed will or did you just seek it somewhere else? Have you read it? I have a book for you. I encourage you to read it. We don't want another generation of believers who just operate on autopilot, who set the cruise control and just go. And yet, let's just be honest, that's kind of what we've become. For a generation or two in our country, we were lulled to sleep by a culture that by and large accepted us. People are worried there are less Christians today than there used to be. No, there's not less Christians today than there used to be. There are more Christians today than there used to be. There's just a whole lot of people that 20 years ago, it was very advantageous for them to call themselves Christians. Because you got ahead in our culture when you were a Christian. And today, you don't get ahead by calling yourself a Christian. So there's a lot of wannabes. But I would say God is still at work and He is still saving people. He is still drawing men and women to Himself. He is still doing the work of salvation that He has promised. I have a book for you to read if you want to know about it. And we're going to start with First Peter in that book. Because we don't want to produce Christians who will simply go through this life not having to think about it. But instead will dive deeply into knowing Christ and want to have true maturity. And so when we look at First and Second Peter, what we see is his purpose statement. 
We see his purpose statement in chapter 5. Look, flip over if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. He gives us his purpose for what's going on. And it's in verse 12. So, this is being written to them. And Silvanus is evidently writing it down. He says, by Silvanus... A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So he wants a brief letter to them, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He wants to show them what the true grace of God looks like. But not just so that they would know it, but look at the next sentence. Stand firm in it. He wants them not to know all of the answers of how to deal with every little aspect of life. He wants them to know what the grace of God looks like in Jesus Christ. And he wants them to stand firm. Firm in it. Why is this so important to Peter? Well, I think it goes back to who Peter is. Remember, Peter, if you've been in church any length of time, you know Peter is the proverbial foot in mouth disciple, foot in mouth apostle, right? He's the guy who could not get it right until he got it really right, and then in the next breath he'd get it really wrong, right? If you go back through Peter's life, think about who he is. Think about who Peter was before Jesus a fisherman, probably with, with a pretty lucrative business as a fisherman. If you go back into Luke's gospel in chapter 5, Jesus performs a miraculous fish expedition. Okay, The fishermen are out there. They've been fishing all night. Jesus shows up and goes, hey, why don't you cast it on the other side? And Peter's like, hey, thanks. Right? But we already tried it all. Cast it on the other side. Right? A, a miraculous catch of fish. And immediately Peter leaves everything behind to follow Jesus and become a fisher of men. For the rest of Jesus' ministry, Peter lived as the disciple of the Lord. He, he was a natural born leader. Peter became the spokesman, more or less, for the twelve disciples. He, he was the first to confess that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus himself said, only God could have revealed that to you because man didn't tell you that. But he said that and then almost immediately he's going, Jesus, you can't talk about this whole going and dying thing. So he's the rock that the church will be built on, but he's also, get thee behind me, Satan. This is Peter's life. Anybody... Feel like at moments you're incredibly useful and then at moments you're incredibly useless? Peter's your guy. Okay, Peter's your guy. Peter showed himself to be incredibly impetuous. It was Peter who left the boat in faith, right? To walk on the water. And I love that whole scene because here comes Jesus walking on the water. And as he gets close, he goes, Hey, it's me, Jesus, right? And Peter goes, if it's you, Lord. Well, that's about the dumbest statement ever. First of all, he's walking on the water. I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. Second of all, he said it was him. And he goes, if it's you, tell me to walk out to you. All right, come on. And even in that, in that leap of faith, he then takes his eyes off Jesus. This is Peter's life. I like Peter. I can relate to Peter. Right? Incredibly useful at times, incredibly useless at others. He, Peter's the one who at the Lord's Supper said, look, 
I'll never deny you. You shouldn't be washing my feet. Oh, but if I don't wash you, then your feet, you have no part of me. Oh, then not my feet, but my whole body. Right? He's the one that wanted all of Jesus. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I don't even know who he is. Just a few hours later. Peter's also the one that after another miraculous catch of fish is restored. Restored by Jesus. And Jesus tells him, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Love my sheep. Why first Peter? Why second Peter? Because this is Peter fulfilling the command of the Lord to feed his sheep. We are the sheep of the Lord, right? We need what Peter says. In that moment of restoration, a moment that's much like many of our lives where God has taken that which was useless and made it useful for Him, we now have a model. We have someone who feeds us, wants us to know the great grace and mercy of Jesus so that we would stand firm in it. Who is Peter? Peter's me. Peter's you. Peter's not the learned guy. Peter's the fisherman. And we need to be people who understand that even through all the ups and downs, even through all the uselessness, Jesus is the one who remains firm. He called Peter the rock, but we all know who the rock was. Right? that Jesus Christ is the only solid rock. Why is this so important? Because there are so many things about Peter that would seem to disqualify him from being useful to the Lord. That would disqualify him from being the one that would be a pillar of the church and the spread of the gospel. But because of God's sovereign goodness and grace poured out on Peter, he uses ordinary, flawed, weak, but transformed people in order to reach people with the gospel. People like you, and like me. So I don't know, maybe you came in here today and you don't feel like God can use you. You don't feel like God can use you because of your past, your present, your failures, your lack of education, your lack of knowledge. Maybe you feel like God wouldn't use you and doesn't want to use you. Look at Peter. Look at Peter. And then see what the Apostle Paul wrote, the guy who seemed to have it all together. Everybody turn to Philippians chapter 3. I want you to see this because if you're here and you're steeped in the past and you're stuck in your own past failures, I want you to see this great hope that we have and this way of living that we should be living out every day. Philippians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going to ask somebody here to stand up and read Philippians 3 verses 13 and 14 because you need to hear it from somebody's voice other than mine. So if someone would stand up and read Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. I don't care. Whoever's up first can do it. Catch that? He's pressing forward. He's pressing upward. He's pressing on. He's moving forward. But what did he say he does first? Forgets what's behind. Why? Because there's a calling that's ahead of us. 
And there's a calling in your life that only you can fulfill. There's a calling God has on your life. Hear me, please. There is a calling on your life that I cannot fulfill. There was a calling on Peter's life that Paul could not fulfill. There's a calling on your life, believer in Christ. And it is not to simply learn about Jesus and to love Jesus. It is to be the people of God and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to everyone you meet. And there are people that you know that I do not know. I can't do your job for you. No one in this room can do your job for you. And there is a calling that He will enable you to do. No matter how bad the past, He will enable you to do it. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is why it's important that we know who Peter is. Because there's an identity that we have. Peter identifies himself as an apostle. Someone who's been transformed by seeing Jesus. But we have an identity in God. And I just want you to see it for just a few minutes of our identity in this passage of Scripture. Look at it with me if you would. There in verses 1 and 2. It says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So he says, so the dispersion is the people of God have been spread out. He's talking like they're the people of Israel. If you go back to the Old Testament, the people lived in Jerusalem. They lived in Israel, right? And then they were taken out into exile and they were taken by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, right? They were taken away. He's talking to us as believers as if we were the Israelites of old being taken away from the place of God, being taken away from the temple, being taken away from the dwelling place of God. That now we're dispersed and we're exiles. We don't belong to this world anymore. But he wants us to understand our identity so that we can live in this world, so that we know how to best be used in this world and best honor Christ in this world. And so he gives us a couple of words here. The first is elect. He says we're the elect people of God. This is our reality. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 through 14, these are some of the realities of us being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. These are some of the realities for us. We have a living hope. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We have Him as His Spirit dwelling inside of us as an insurance that He will one day make us His own and we will see Him face to face. That we have an inheritance secured for us in heaven in Christ Jesus. These are all realities for us in the electing love of God. That He said, you weren't a people and now you're a people. You weren't a nation and now you're a nation. You were far off from me and I've drawn you near. You, you know what this looks like if you've been a believer for any length of time. Okay? When you were, first came to Christ, if you think back on it, it seems like you had so much to do with it. right? It seems like at that time you're like, well, somebody told me about Jesus. That was a human part of it. And then I was told I needed to repent of my sins, and that's something I did, right? And then I was told I needed to place my faith in Jesus, and something I did. I was told I needed to be baptized in order to demonstrate um, my obedience to Christ as a new believer. That's something I did, right? But the farther you get away from that moment of conversion, as you move forward and as you grow in maturity, you look back and you go, God did all of that, <laughs> right? The more you look at it, you see the miracle of God working. Let me give you a couple of miracles, okay? Real quick. You were born in the 20th century. In America, most of us. And you didn't choose that. You know who chose that? God. Electing love of God. 
You weren't born in India where you would have never heard the gospel. You weren't born in China where billions have lived and died and never heard the gospel. Understand the great love that has been placed on you by the sovereign grace of God. Many of you were raised in Christian homes. You didn't choose your parents. Who did? Isn't that great good news that He has pursued us? And He continues to hold us and pursue us even though we reject His electing love. He continues to come after us. This is our identity as the people of God. That we are the ones that He has made into a great nation. That doesn't make us better than anyone else. There was nothing we could add to this. We had nothing in our hands to bring to Him. He took lost pitiful sinners and made us into the elected saints of God. That's what he did. That is good news. That is good news. And so when Peter's reminding us of this, he's reminding us of our identity in him so that when our identity is at odds with the world, we're not freaked out. Right now, we've got a lot of freaking out going on. As believers, guess what? We have a whole lot of people that like to look at our world and as Christians we want to go, oh no, no, we're not that much different than you. Yes, we are. The great love of God has been placed on us so that we would know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We're really different than they are. And if you're not really different than they are, you haven't met Jesus. Why is it that we want to be so much like the world when (laughs) Jesus says the world would never know Him? Oh, that we would be more like Jesus. The second word He uses is really interesting too, isn't it? He says we're elect exiles. If you read through Hebrews 11, you see this, what we call hall of faith. People, person after person being heralded for their faith and shown that they are followers of Christ by their faith. All the way back to the Old Testament, we see evidences of this. And you know what's said of them? You know what their faith looked like? They were waiting on another city. <laughs> they wanted another home. That's what they were looking for. They, they understood they were just temporary residents here. Their faith didn't look like, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Their faith looked like... <laughs> I got a home that I'm waiting for and Jesus is there. (laughs) They didn't put much stock in this world. You know what exiles means for us? It means we don't have to buy into the way the world thinks. We don't have to. We don't need a bucket list. You know why? We've got a new heavens and a new earth coming. We, we don't need to gather up as much as we can in order to be comfortable because we have a Christ who satisfies all in all. And he says, whatever you lose for my name's sake, you're going to gain back a hundredfold. To be exiles means we don't have to live in a way that we have to gain here because our gain is coming. We don't have to buy into the way the world thinks. You know the old adage, you know what I'm talking about, where it says, you're of you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good 
Could it be that we're just too earthly minded to be of any heavenly good? Could it be that we've just bought in to a world that's passing away? As exiles, who are we called to be? Well, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis put it this way. They said, Christians are not strangers because they have moved their homeland to a new country. They are exiles because their identity has so radically changed that they are no longer at home in their country of birth. Hear hear me. I want to make sure you understand this in application. I hear a lot of people ruining the fact that our country is changing. I don't like the way our country is going either. But I'm not surprised. There's a whole lot of lost people running things. And when sinners do things, you know what they're really good at? Sinning. So we should not be that surprised by a whole bunch of sinners sinning. Here's my question. Are you more concerned with the world that's changing or whether you're changing? You see, the mark of a believer is not that they're staying the same while the world is running away from God. It's that we're running to Christ while the world is running away. There should be transformation happening in us that makes us so markedly different than the world because we're exiles. We're not going to be here forever. Right? We have a home. We have a new city. A place to go. We've been chosen by the Father. We're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit. It's right there that the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with His blood, that His blood and His Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus. You know what's really interesting? We're told right here in verse 2 that all of this exile that we're in is by the sovereign work of God through His foreknowledge. He knows what He's doing. He has a plan in this. You know what it is? To make us more like Jesus. Take heart, believer. It could be, as Russell Moore says, that God is not done He has not given up on American Christianity. The shaking of our culture may not be a sign that God has given up on American Christianity. It may be that God is actually saving American Christianity from itself. Because for too long we've been too much like the world. Could it be that we've moved from the center to the margins so that we could live as God always intended us to live? By faith not by sight as elect exiles hey you know what I want you to understand this that makes me excited so when people sit there Paul and I have had this conversation Paul's always like Brad all this stuff happens this is my Paul impression all this stuff happens <laughs> and and you get up there and you're not like worried about it and I, I don't I don't get how you do that die tomorrow and I'd be better off. They could take it all and I get a lot more in the end. Take my life because no one can take my Christ. What are you worried about? He's overcome the world. But we got a lot of freaking out going on, folks. But I want, to, I want to make sure you understand this, that I believe this has always been the plan of God, that we would live as elect exiles. This is not by accident it's here in the Word of God from 2,000 years ago. 
that we would be elect exiles today. So I want you to see what's happened in our culture and I want you to find great hope. But it's going to change some stuff around here. We're going to have to change the way we operate as individuals and as a church. So I want you to see this if you could. Okay? I want you to see that when we know that God has done the work to make us His own and He's doing it to make us more like Jesus, this is what He's doing in our culture and I believe it's part of the plan. Here you go. Stephen Murray put it this way in, in this book called After Christendom. When he said, It used to be that in our culture in America, Christianity held the center stage. From the beginning in America, Christianity has held the center stage. It's held the influence. It's held the position. It's, Christians have, it's been advantageous to be a believer in Christ in our culture. And that has changed. We are in a post-Christendom time in America where we're no longer at the center stage. And this is what he says is going to happen. We move from the center to the margins. Before the Christian story and the churches were central to life, but now they're marginal. We're going to move from majority to minority. In Christendom, Christians comprised usually overwhelmingly a majority. But today we're a minority. We've moved from settlers to sojourners. Before, Christians felt at home in a culture shaped by their story. But today we're aliens, we're exiles, we're outsiders, we're pilgrims in a culture where we no longer feel at home. We've moved from privilege now to plurality. We used to be the privileged people. There were privileges that came with being a believer in our culture. And now we're just one among other ways of living. We've moved from control where we used to exert control over society. The churches did. But now we exercise influence only through our witness to who Jesus Christ is. It's the only way we're going to exert any control is through our witness. We've, we have to and we are moving from maintenance to mission. It used to be that the emphasis in churches and as a believer was just on maintaining what we had. But today we're on a mission. Because we have loved ones that you called out their names that need Jesus Christ. You realize eight years ago, if I had asked you to do that, most of you would have said this. No, no, I think most people in Powhatan are believers. In fact, I had that conversation with very many of you. That your friends were all believers. That they grew up in church. That they did the church thing. And now it's interesting. Name after name after name after name that we recognize their need for Jesus. And finally, as a church, we're moving from being an institution to being a movement. You see, we don't want to be a place to gather. We want to be a place to go. And we're going to be a movement that moves forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me, folks. God is not surprised. But He's working. This is 2,000 years ago. And it could have been written today. You think God knows what He's doing now? Let's trust Him. Let's trust Him. I want to ask you this question as I close. As elect exiles of the dispersion, this is who we are. Elect exiles of the dispersion. We're the people of God no matter where we are. One, are you doing what the purpose of 1 Peter is, standing firm in the grace of God? Two, are you doing what the purpose of 
our identity in Christ is, and that is that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you proclaiming how great he is? Otherwise, you're not looking a whole lot different, right? Could, could it be that God's design was that we would be weak so that he could be strong? I mean, it is in the Bible, folks, right? Could it be that that's always been his design, that we wouldn't be strong? But that the message we have is not look how great and how strong Christianity is, but we would be able to say how high and how wide and how deep, right? It's the love of God in Christ Jesus. Could it be that our weakness is actually going to show him to be more powerful? Finally, I want to ask you this. Would you feel more comfortable in Afghanistan among believers in Jesus Christ than you would among lost people in America? It's going to be a proving ground for us, folks. Would you feel more comfortable in Toronto among Muslim refugees who are coming to Christ? Former Muslims who are coming to Christ in D.C. where people are coming left and right to knowing Jesus Christ. In Syria, I had a Muslim background believer in Jesus Christ tell me, you know what, ISIS is doing a really good job for the gospel in Syria because all of the Muslim background folks there don't want anything to do with Islam. All those people in those camps they don't want anything to do with Islam if that's what Islam is and we're having the opportunity to go in and share the gospel with them praise God think he knows what he's doing so I ask you would you feel more at home in a camp in Syria among believers than you would in America among lost people I'm not saying you don't go to the lost people I'm saying you go to the lost people you live with your family. And every Afghani, every Indian, every Syrian, every Iraqi, every Iranian believer in Jesus Christ is more your family than a blood relative who does not know Jesus. Remember, we're talking about eternity here. I want to make sure we get this right. So we'll think deeply of the things of God. Not looking for quick answers, but looking for reality that changes not only our lives, but everyone we come in contact with. So if you're here today, we want you to feel at home here, but you're not going to feel at home here unless you know Jesus Christ. We're not going to be a a social club or a cultural center. We're going to be a new culture, a new nation, a new people. We know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We know that He gave Himself on the cross in our place, though we deserved that death. And He died for us, that we might have life. And then He rose again so that we would have life today and for eternity. And one day we're, we're all getting new bodies. Every single person who has ever lived on this earth and will ever live on this earth will get new bodies. And those who are by faith in Jesus Christ, who have placed their trust in Him by His grace, 
we'll get new bodies to enjoy a new heaven and new earth forever and ever and ever with Jesus. But you need to know that everybody gets new bodies. And those who are not in Christ Jesus by grace through faith will get new bodies to suffer for eternity. And I don't take any joy in that. And that's why I tell you, be reconciled to God today by Jesus Christ. Every single person here would love to talk to you about faith in Jesus Christ and what it is to believe Him and to follow Him. If you're here today and you'd like to talk to somebody today, you'd say, look, here's the, here's the deal. I'm willing to talk to anybody today who wants to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not asking the, uh, the people who need Jesus to raise their hand. I'm asking anybody in here who would say, I'd be willing to talk today to anyone here who needs to know Jesus Christ. Will you raise your hand? Okay, now you know who to go to. Okay? Now you know who to go to. If you need to talk about Jesus, don't leave here until you do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be the people of God as you've designed so that we would walk in your ways and stand firm in the grace that's been given to us in Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand with me as we close and as we go? This is who we are. It's our identity, but it's also our mission. So let's proclaim it and then let's go do it. Let's read together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Go and live as the people of God.